0: Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. After forging her reputation as one of the most innovative and exciting Francophone authors, with the slight, tense Adele and the Goncourt-winning lullaby, with her third novel, The Country of Others, Leila Slimani expands her horizons, quite literally, to take in the vast, dusty plains of Morocco. After marrying Amin, an Arabic soldier fighting for the French colonial army in 1944, Mathilde leaves her Alsacian home for an isolated Moroccan farming estate. It's a struggle from the start as she adapts to life in a country divided between two cultures, one of which is on the point of throwing off the yoke of the other. The Country of Others is an immensely readable, deeply moving story of Steinbeckian scope, encompassing family drama, politics, desire and injustice set against the grand sweep of history. And I'm delighted to say that Leila Slimani joins us to talk about it today. Leila, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I think where I would like to begin is um, how The Country of Others differs from your previous novels. Um, When we uh, spoke at the bookshop, when you did an event around Lullaby, one thing that you said was that for both Lullaby and for Adele, is that you used sort of subjects that were in the news as a jumping-off point? So whether it be the the situation around the um, uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn or this real uh, fait divers with the uh, the nanny in uh, in New York who had um, had, uh, had had killed the children in her care, whereas that's clearly not the case with the country of others. Um, could you talk a little bit about? the jumping off point, where the the inspiration came to write um, not only a story uh, set in Morocco, but set in Morocco of the 1940s and 50s?
1: Um, You know, I, I think that I've always known that I was going to write this book There are two books, I'm sure, or I was sure I was going to write. This one and another one that I'm going to write about my father. I think that every writer knows that he has one or two books he is going to write. But I was not sure I was going to do it now. And uh, actually, when I told my publisher about my family, about the story of my grandmother and my desire to write a big trilogy about Morocco, he said to me, it was three years ago, maybe, he said to me that I was too young. And he said, you need more experience and um, you should wait before writing something like that, because it will take you a lot of energy, a lot of time. And then after the Goncourt Prize, um, I traveled a lot. Uh, I spent a lot of time speaking about writing, but not writing, actually. And I was feeling a little bit melancholic. And I think that in the different hotel rooms I was, the things I was thinking about was my childhood, my grandmother, the feelings and the sensation of uh, living in this farm. And uh, I missed Morocco very, very much. And also, maybe it has to do with the fact that I was a little bit tired of the news, of information, we are living in a, in a society and in a, in a time where we are like overwhelmed by information all the time. And maybe I didn't want to write again about something that I found in a newspaper, but about something that I felt was more universal, um, the story, a love story, a story about a family, about identity, about history, and uh, of course, about my country.
0: Nowhere on the the novel does it specify on the cover or anything that this is your family story, um, and yet you've just said you know you were inspired by the the, the story of your grandmother. Um, is there something different as a as an author when you're being inspired by something you've read about in the newspaper and you're using that as a jumping off point, and when you are engaging with uh, people that you knew, people who have shaped you, other? Are the stakes different as a writer in that respect?
1: Oh, yes, it's very different for many reasons. It's different because you feel more emotional when you write, Mm. uh, because you you remember uh, about those people who passed away and about all the stories they, they told you, but also because you feel a certain responsibility towards those who are still alive, and especially my mother, because even mm-hmm. if Mathilde is not my grandmother and Aisha is not my mother, um, mm-hmm. my mother can still recognize a lot of things and a lot of anecdotes uh, in the book. But at the same time, so she wasn't angry against me because she said, that's a real fiction, that's a real novel. Mm-hmm. I didn't write about my grandmother, but I wrote about the woman she wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um she my grandmother was a storyteller and she was a great liar and she was always telling me stories about her youth that were not true and I knew it was not true and everybody knew but we acted as if we believed her and it was it was nice because it was part of our uh, family legend mm-hmm. and um when I began the book um I wanted to give a, a life Uh, to this woman not my grandmother but the fantasy she had of herself
0: Hmm. that's that's really fascinating as well just to think that sort of as soon as you said she was a great liar a great storyteller um, it feels like that's perhaps the um, the thing that she's passed down to you in fact I mean I don't know if it if it skipped a generation with your mother or whether that's something that you're uh, you're a gift that your mother has as well but it's Uh, It's fascinating that that could go from somebody who sort of uses it to spin a family legend to two generations later, uh, a sort of a, a prominent novelist in the family.
1: Yeah, I think that I owe a lot of things to my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um she's the one who taught me the the power you can you can have when you tell a story because uh, when we were young with my sisters and my cousin we would spend all the holidays with my grandmother in in this farm and during summer the weather was very very warm. It was mm-hmm. terrible. So it was difficult to sleep at night and she would mm-hmm. all take us in her room We would sleep on the floor and she would say, I'm going to tell you a story. And Mm -hmm. we could spend hours just listening to her. And it was very often very cruel stories, very um, weird stories also, with children dying and uh, uh, big ogres uh, eating children. So it was not at all something romantic or beautiful. It was very violent. And, of course, she would tell us stories about uh, herself, how she met Mm -hmm. my grandfather. And we would always ask, tell us about the war. We want to know about the war. What did Mm -hmm. you do during the war? Because for us, it was fascinating and, um, yeah, so she gave me the, the taste and the, 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 the pleasure of, uh, of telling, of telling stories. And actually she wrote a book when she was mm. like 60 years old or 65 years old. She wrote a sort of memoir about, her, about her life. So of course there is something like a inheritance or a transmission between her, between me and her.
0: Mm one thing you said um when you were talking about the kind of book you wanted to write was you wanted to write a um a sort of a universal story and it's definitely the case that there's a lot of elements in um the country of others where you know there's sort of the the family structure family tension and things like that which are uh, clearly something which people wherever they are in the world whichever epoch they they grew up in will be able to project onto but there's also something very specific about the the situation of the historical situation. So it's Morocco just after the Second World War, just as the um independence movement is is burgeoning. But also I think in Mathilde's situation itself, so she was a uh, a French woman, um, uh, an Alsacian from, from uh, around Strasbourg, who married a, uh, fell in love with and married uh, an Arabic soldier who'd been serving in, in the French army and moved to to Morocco to to, to build a life there with him. Which to me, I, when I was reading it, I was wondering how, how common such a situation was. It struck me as that would be something quite unusual for um, for for a French woman to do in the 1940s, and in that way, there's both these universal elements, but also something quite exceptional and quite specific about this story.
1: Yes, it was very uncommon, and that's why also I wanted to tell this story because I wanted first to explain to not to explain, but but to to show the the, the reader something that is very important is that. Uh, the colonial um, adventure or the colonialism was also a sexual adventure. Uh, when the white man, the European man, arrived in Africa, they arrived not only with the idea to penetrate territories, but in a certain way to penetrate also the bodies of the women there. Mm-hmm. There was this idea that we are going to dominate the land and to dominate the bodies. And this idea mm-hmm. also that Africans, Arabs and uh, Africans from um, uh, Afrique subsaharienne, that those uh, people had a very weird and wild sexuality mm. and that we should be very careful with them and white women should never be in contact with those people. So the idea that a wise man ha- having a relationship with uh, an indigenous indigenous woman was absolutely acceptable because it was like a reward for the the, the man Mm -hmm. who was a, a colonist. But the opposite was very scandalous, very subversive. The idea that a white woman would have sex with an Arab and so that she would experience this wild and weird sexuality was something very subversive. Mm. And uh, my mother and my grandmother, they always told me that she they could feel the, the hate, the racism, and uh, also a certain fascination towards their couple because... Uh, it was so rare and so exceptional. And uh, my grandmother, she was very, very young, and she came, uh, and like Mathilde, she came from from uh, Alsace, and she belonged to a certain bourgeoisie. The idea that uh, this kind of woman could live in the farm, in what they called at that time le bled, mm-hmm. with um, with peasants and with farmers, with uh, people who couldn't read or, or, or write. Uh, so yeah, of course, it was really, really rare. But after in the, in the sixties, it became more common because a, a lot of, um, of Moroccan people went mm-hmm. to France or to Europe to, to study. And then they met, um, young women, but it was the sixties and the, those French women had the feeling that, you know, uh, we have to do the revolution. So it was also something very revolutionary. Mm-hmm. But at the time of Mathilde, yeah, of course, it's very rare.
0: And there's also the sense that sort of um, how Mathilde would be received into the society, Moroccan society, would be different than, for example, a a white French man at the time. Uh, We we get a sense that sort of she uh, is both sort of, um, yeah, as you say, sort of an object of fascination, but also is kind of kept at a distance by... um, by, for example, uh, Amin's, uh friends or, or associates?
1: Yeah, the thing is that um, she can't belong. Mm. That's what I wanted to show about Mathilde. Uh, she can't belong to the... The, the camp, the, the group of colonists. She can't really belong to the family of uh, of Amin or more generally to the Moroccan society. It will take a lot of time for her to really create a bond with, with this Moroccan society that is more traditional. And at the beginning, she doesn't speak Arabic. She doesn't understand um, anything about the culture and the tradition so I think that the tragedy of her life at the beginning is that she understands that she's going to be alone. Uh, she's going to live on this farm, like on an island, completely isolated, and that probably the only friend she's going to 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 make or to have are. Going to be marginalized, people like her, uh, pariah like her. That's why um, she 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 becomes friend with a, a Hungarian um, a refugee or with the Berberian woman because they don't really care about her position, her social position, or about her race. So yeah, it's the tragedy of uh, of solitude, of loneliness. But it comes not only from the fact that she is white, but from the fact that she is a woman. Uh, as we said before, because the fact that she's a, a woman gives the a certain legitimacy to other people to dominate her and to despise her. I think that uh, if she if she had been a man, it would have been completely different.
0: It's um it's quite striking when um, when she first arrives um, and is first sort kind of attempting, I guess, to to adapt her life there. A phrase that she has, hears several times is um, that's how things are here. Um, and I, I wonder as well uh, how that must be for, or how that must have been for a, uh, a woman sort of coming from France. And probably, you know, even though she was a sort of a young woman looking for an adventure and she'd fallen in love with his Arabic man, I wonder if there was a certain sort of culture shock for her in a way that in being, uh, you know, coming from the, the mother country, coming from uh, being a white person, coming into Morocco, that she wasn't able to shape her life in perhaps quite the way that she might have imagined or might have expected. Um, and it leads to a certain, uh, I guess, incongruity sometimes. Um, I think of one particular scene where she is trying to instruct her, I think it's her mother-in-law, how to make uh, crème patissière. Um, and the idea of sort of making this very French dish in the kind of the the conditions of the sort of um, the the sort of the, the Moroccan the Moroccan heat and with the sort of with not necessarily being able to to, to source all the ingredients or all the materials she wants, it yeah, it leads leads to this very kind of uh, dislocated uh, response to to life there from her.
1: Yeah, but um, you have to remember that even if she's very open-minded, even if she decides to marry an Arabic man and to go with him to Morocco, she is still a, a French young woman who was probably very much influenced by the colonist uh, ideology. Mm -hmm. You you have to imagine that probably at school um, she learned that uh, Arab people and black people were not equal to her, that they were savage, that they, I don't know, were cannibals or things like that, things that you Mm -hmm. you would Uh, here at school when you were a child at that time. So for her, when she wants to make crème pâtissière in her farm in Meknes, it's also because she wants to say, I belong to the civilization and crème pâtissière is a real dish. It's not like you making your dish of, of savage and of, you know. So um, I, I wanted also not to give a too ideal or idealistic vision of Mathilde. Um, of course, she she has very bright sides because she had, she's adventurous and she's brave. But at the same time, she is also sometimes a little bit racist and uh, despiseful through the her maid or her mother-in-law. And at the beginning, she doesn't want to understand this culture, because she was told that this culture is not as uh, advanced and uh, as um, yeah as prestigious as the the one she comes from, the French the French one. So yeah, all, there's always a conflict, and that's probably why she's even more. Uh, Angry and furious that she can't belong because she thinks that she she yeah she comes from France she comes from the the brightest and the most uh, uh, powerful and beautiful civilization so um, that's why I think she wants to to do this kind of thing like the the crème pâtissière. In the letters she wrote to her sister, Mathilde always lied. She said that her life was like a novel by Karen Blixen or Alexandra David-Neill or Pearl Buck. In each missive, she would invent adventures where she came in contact with the ingenuous people who were tender or superstitious. She described herself wearing boots and a hat, riding aloof on an Arab thoroughbred. She wanted Irene to be jealous. She wanted each word to be torture to her. She wanted her sister to die of envy, to be enraged. Mathilde wanted vengeance on this tall, strict, authoritarian sister who had always treated her like a child and often taken pleasure in publicly humiliating her. feather Mathilde, shameless Mathilde, Irene called her, without any love or indulgence. Mathilde had always thought that her sister had failed to understand her, that she'd held her prisoner to a tyrannical affection. When she left for Morocco, when she left behind their village, their neighbors, and the future that had been promised to her, Mathilde's first feeling was one of triumph. To begin with, she wrote enthusiastic letters describing her life in the house in the Medina, She emphasized the mysteriousness of Berima's alleys, exaggerated the filthiness of the street, the noise and the stink of the donkeys that transported men and merchandise. One of the nuns at the school gave her a little book about Meknes with reproductions of engravings by Delacroix. She put this book with its yellow page on a table and tried to steep herself in it. She memorized certain especially poetic passages by Pierre Loti and marveled at the thought that the writer had slept only a few miles from there, that his eyes too had seen the walls and pools of the Agdat Gardens. She told her sister about the embroiderers, the boilermakers, the woodturners who sat cross-legged in their underground shops. She told her about the processions of guilds and associations in Place El hadim and the parade of seers and healers. In one of her letters, she devoted almost a whole page to a description of a bone-setter's shop that sold yenas curls, dried crows, hedgehog feet, and snake venom. She thought this would impress Irene and her father, And that day, upstairs in their bourgeois house, would envy her for having sacrificed boredom to adventure, comfort to exoticism. Everything in this landscape was unexpected, different to what she had known before. She would have needed new words, a whole vocabulary freed of the past, to express her feelings. The light so bright that you lived life through Scrington's eyes to describe the awe she felt day after day when faced with so much mystery, so much beauty. Nothing here was familiar, not the colour of the trees or the sky, not even the taste that the wind left on her tongue and lips. Everything had
0: changed. One of the things that's fascinating about the story of Mathilde is how she adapts and how she becomes part of life in, you know, in her extended family, but also in uh, sort of perhaps a you know, slightly wider um, community. But at first there seems to be this kind of uh, immense sense of powerlessness, I guess, uh, that comes with the, with the, the isolation that comes with this, this sense of, uh, of culture clash Um and one thing that strikes me, and this is coming back to, to something you said earlier about the way this is sort of the way that um, sort of sex was viewed between uh, Europeans and Arabic people, is the sort of at a couple of points in the book, uh, Mathilde realizes that um, sex is both a way to kind of escape, to sort of control and to kind of reclaim power. So there's There's one moment where you're writing about early in the relationship. Um, And in fact, it's uh, you write that uh, sex and coming was the only way she could calm her fear, control it, gain some sort of power over the war. And then later on in the book, and I won't give too much away, but there's one sense where there's one moment where she is feeling almost completely devoid of power and influence and kind of. Despair of feeling a little and feeling somewhat ashamed because of something she was something she did and something she was unable to do connected to uh her um her sister in law and there's this scene in which she uses her sexuality as a way to kind of to r- reclaim her power and to kind of reassert her her position and her role in the um in her relationship with uh, with Amin and i'm curious because of course your previous book or at least your previous one published in english was um was sex and lies um which was sort of you you are sort of writing about the the um the sex lives of moroccan women and this is these are contemporary moroccan women but i'm curious to know about the i guess the 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 influence of the the research you did for the book and the writing of this book had on the sort of the shaping of matilde and particularly the um, yeah, her sexuality,
1: um, and that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I think that what I've learned from sex and lies were not only political things or political statement, but also that sex is something very mysterious mm-hmm. that you can't always ra- rationalize or um, it's not uh, logical. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I interviewed women who did things that they knew were wrong for them, who went with men that they knew were go- was going to betray them or to despise them, but they did it anyway. Um, so... That's probably the most uh, powerful thing I learned from all those interviews is, uh, yeah, of course, sexuality in a country like Morocco has... The, the, choice you make you make in, in terms of sexuality are going to have a lot of consequences on your life, um, on your social life because you can be marginalized. You can, uh, have, uh, financial issues because you have to get an abortion and you can't and things like that. But it's not only that. Uh, sometimes you accept to sacrifice your freedom or even your dignity, um, for sex and um, who are we to judge those women? And especially as a novelist, um, I'm not interested in in judging them, but in trying just to look at them and try to understand why sometimes sex pushes us uh, in places where we shouldn't be or where we don't want to be or where we regret at the end to be. So I I think it's the same for Mathilde. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to... Give you a, re- a rational or a psychological answer, but mm-hmm. um, maybe she should go to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist w- would tell you why she she has this uh, this relationship with sex but uh, a novelist is not a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. but it 's just that it 's something I felt I knew that my child had this kind of relationship with sex, and I wanted to write it exactly like i I, I felt it and um, it doesn 't mean that I understand her mm-hmm. sometimes i don 't understand my characters. But yeah, I know that the only place where she has some power, the only place where she feels, she still feels she's alive, is sex. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that she she has with Amin a very sensual relation. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of readers ask me about the fact, why did she stay after what he did to her? Why didn't... And I was like, first of all, it's not that easy and you can't judge a woman mm-hmm. for staying. And the, the second thing is that there is also something like a secret, like a, a mystery in the relationship between those two persons mm-hmm. because they are very much attracted to one another. And um, when they can't speak, when the communication is completely over, um, there is the silence and there is sex.
0: hmm hmm that's that's really fascinating as well because i think um the next thing i was i was going to come on to talk about was this kind of concept of um sort of landscape Anyway, there's kind of the isolation that mathilde finds herself in and i noted down actually um the the, the line where you write that uh, mathilde was staring out at the landscape in which she could find no meaning or beauty and it was just that sort of that sense now of meaning or beauty just thinking about it in the context of um of sex as well like there's a, perhaps that is sort of for her there's something particularly in the sort of the context she finds herself in that's so completely um in many ways incomprehensible to her that there's a sort of the perhaps the sort of the the sense of beauty and the sense of some sort of meaning of sort of turning inwards and finding um yeah that sort of connection that sexual connection is something that at least is amplified by the the sort of the the isolated context of uh, of the farm
1: yeah and, and you know i think it's something very important for us novelists to say uh, especially now in a In a time, in a society, I think, where people are very arrogant when it comes to sometimes to analyze uh, life or to analyze a novel. Uh, This is good. This is bad. This is uh, the way it should be. This is not possible. I think it's very important to say that uh, a lot of things are not comprehensible. Mm -hmm. A lot of things have no meanings. Very often we are completely lost and it takes a whole life sometimes to just begin to understand uh, um yeah the, the the issues of this or, or that so that's also something I always want to put in my in my novels uh, i don't want to be uh, uh yeah an arrogant novelist or like mm-hmm. a, a Little God with my puppets. My my characters are not my puppets. I I don't understand them all the time, and they don't understand their their own life. And it's um it's important, I think, to to say that and to say that. Very often we are in the dark.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I think that's really interesting, and I think from the sort of uh, it's something that is sometimes quite hard to communicate to readers actually, as, or people who have not necessarily gone through the process of writing fiction and perhaps particularly the the novel form where characters have the the sort of the space to kind of to expand and complexify and become more real to say as a writer sort of i don't i didn't know my character was going to do that or i don't understand why they did that i found in the past kind of um conducting these interviews that often such a statement which from a writer's perspective i know to be completely true is often met with a certain sort of impatience by readers who, um, who would imagine that every choice is completely rational and done for a particular purpose, to be told that, no, there's something very mysterious and very um, unknowable about these, these characters that are coming forth from us.
1: Yeah, and you know, sometimes you write pages or two or three pages and at the end of the day, you read what you wrote and you're amazed, you're surprised. <laughs> you're like, how did I do that? Uh, how how did I have this idea? And the truth is, you really don't know. There is also a part of, of mystery in, in creation. And uh, I think that today, I don't know if it has to do with all the creative writing or mm-hmm. with the, the fact that we always analyze um a uh, novel's through sociology and politics but uh, people tend to forget that but mm-hmm. the truth is that we we don't control everything mm-hmm.
0: I'd like to come back to this um this idea of the landscape um because it's it seems to me that the country of others is a novel which is very much shaped by the the sort of the physical landscape in which uh, Mathilde finds herself the sort of the isolation of the farm, but also on the kind of the uh, in the case of Amin, um, who is determined to become a successful farmer, the sort of the challenges that this um, very sort of uh, specific and quite difficult uh, to farm uh, land uh, presents to to him, and therefore presents to to them as a as, as a family. Um, now, obviously, you have spent a lot of time. Um, in Morocco but also equally obviously you haven't spent time in sort of 1940s Morocco and I'm curious to know about how it how easy it was for you to sort of to, to access this particular terrain but also at that particular epoch like are there parts of the country which remain relatively unchanged that you were able to visit and kind of take inspiration from and sort of really uh, sort of ground yourself in the kind of experience that Mathilde would have had or have with sort of changing in farming methods and things like that is, is this kind of a state now a thing of the past in Morocco?
1: Um, yeah, it's a thing of the past, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, I made a lot of research For, first of all, my grandfather. He told me a lot about his work because he was really passionate. And that's also something, uh, uh I want to explore and to, to, to convey in the whole trilogy. Uh, I, I want to speak about those people in the, the 40s who were farmers and who really believed in, in progress, who believed in the possibility to have uh, modern exploitation and to buy, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how to say in English, detractor and all kinds of, uh, of machines yeah. And my grandfather, he was this kind of man. He didn't go to school. He didn't um, go to, to college, but, uh, he was always reading about agronomy, about new varieties of, uh, olive trees or orange trees. And, um, I'm very admirative of, um, of those people who spent life working and working really hard because the, the work of a, a farmer is very hard and very sometimes, um, uh, Um, yeah, you can get very pessimistic because you can have a very... Uh, good year and the year after is a catastrophe because of uh, you don't know the dryness or because of uh, a parasite or whatever. So I had a lot of information and a lot of documents from my grandfather about his own farm. And I had, of course, my own souvenir because the farm in the 80s, even if it was, of course, very different from the one they arrived in, gave me, I think, the, the atmosphere. I could imagine the atmosphere of the, the, the one they arrived in. And um, also, I, I found a lot of photographs. And I worked a lot of with archives, like um, old videos, old photographs. And I found also uh, diaries and letters from uh, colonists writing to the metropole, writing to their family in France, and telling them about what they call the life uh, uh, in the bled, because those colonies were arriving in the countryside, very isolated. And uh, at that time, as I said, Morocco, in terms of... uh... Yeah, in terms of economy, in terms of development was like a feudal country. Uh, you had nothing. And at the beginning of the, of the 19th century, you still have a, a big uh, famine in Morocco. People were starving. It was really, really difficult. So, yeah, I think that with all those elements, uh, with, and with my imagination of, of course, uh, I, I tried to, yeah, to to create this atmosphere of um, of dryness uh, with the the wild beasts, the wild animals in the in the farm. And my mother told me something. And sometimes a, a novel comes just from a, a sentence or a souvenir. My mother told me, you can't imagine what it was when I was a child because you don't. Uh, you can't figure what it is when there is absolutely no light. It was dark, completely dark in the night because they didn't have electricity and the city was very far away. So she said, now you don't know that because anywhere you go uh, today, you can always find uh, a source of, of of light. But the idea of a place where at night you can't even see your own, uh, your own feet, uh, I think it's something that, is probably that was probably terrifying for for a little child.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, and, it, and I think there's also one thing that comes across very clearly in the book is how political land is. Um, now, obviously, you know, we we we're sort of familiar with um, the sense of territory being political, and you know, uh, peoples and borders and and things like that. But one thing that really struck me was how the the land itself and how the farming of the land and the tending of the land contains such sort of political resonances, particularly at this time, so on the one side, you have the colonists and their attitude of well, you know the you know they never did the natives never did anything with this land before. it's only because of us that um any of this land is can be cultivated, and as if we were to leave it would just fall into. Uh, sort of, um, you know, it will become barren and lifeless again. And then on the side of the, uh, the sort of the native Moroccans, and particularly those who are perhaps um, pushing and agitating for independence, there's this idea of uh, the the land being the source of the country's wealth and the um, the the sort of the secret for sort of guaranteeing its. Uh, future sort of independence and uh and future prosperity and that sort of yeah that tension between um the i guess the different interpretations of the land and the different sort of ideas for how it should be farmed and how it should be used came across very clearly
1: yeah it's very important in the book and uh um the both both of them are saying it's my land mm-hmm. but it not in the same way colonies saying it's my land because I colonized it and now it's mine, and because I cultivate and I did a lot of things i I brought progress and technology to this um to this ariarated land and Moroccan also but Amin especially he says it's my land but not in a nationalist uh, meaning but just saying it's my land because I'm going to cultivate it and my children are going to eat the food that was cultivated here and we are going to be buried here that's also what I wanted to show the difference between the difference of meaning Mm -hmm. when you say my land what, what it is to own a land who can say it's my land is it because of your political power is it because you take care every day of of this land and um there's a at the beginning of the book the the little quote la guerre la guerre Mm -hmm. la guerre war 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 from uh gone with the wind Mm -hmm. and i have to say that as a teenager when i watched the movie for the first time the moment when she takes the 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 in her in her hand, and she said, "Tara, nothing is more important mm-hmm. than uh, your land. It's something stupid, but as a child and as the the grandchild of my grandfather, that's something I could completely understand. My grandfather, I think that um, um, he he made war and he he suffered a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, at the end of his life, I think that he he didn't want to get involved in nothing politic, mm-hmm. but." Um, For his land, for his, just for his farm, I think that he would have fight again, even at 80 or 85 years Uh old, because it was, yeah, it was his farm Uh and he had a, he had a real relationship even with every tree. I remember that I would would have walked with him in the, in the farm and he would show me a tree and he said, Oh, you know, this one, he doesn't give good fruit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, and how do you know that it's exactly him? He said, "I know every tree. I know every one of of them." And I told him, "Why don't you get rid of this of of this tree if it doesn't give good fruit?" And he said, "Because you have to give him a second chance. Maybe next year it will be better." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a very very emotional and a very personal relationship mm-hmm. he had with the with the land,
0: and it, it sounds from the way you describe it as well as if there was a sort of a real sense of um, of pride, uh, particularly at that point in his life, about sort of about that connection with the with the trees, the connection with the land, with the sort of the capacity to to cultivate it, and that's something with Amin that we feel that he is grasping for, that he's trying to attain, um, because at this particular sort of period in Amin's life, he doesn't seem to be a man particularly uh, full of sort of pride or particularly sort of self-respect. He seems in many ways quite ashamed. That's a word which keeps coming up uh, about Amin. It's sort of feeling shame in certain uh, situations. So shame at moments when he's unable to cultivate the land in quite the way that he was hoping, but also shame connected to uh, his position as a native Moroccan in a colonised society. Um, Shame because of perhaps some of the things that he did in the war or the fact that he fought for the French, whereas certain people like his his brother Omar considered that, um, yeah, a completely sort of uh, disgraceful thing for, for a Moroccan to do. Um, and that, yeah, that 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 sense of shame does seem to be quite uh, restrictive and quite sort of a, a burden on on Amin, particularly at this at this stage in his life.
1: Yeah, shame is very present uh, in the book. I think in general, but uh, Amin is the one who is suffering the most from it because uh, uh, I think that uh, when he comes back to Morocco after the war. Um, First of all, he, he gets conscious of the fact that even if he acted during the war like a hero, um, he gets no recognition and no gratitude from anyone in, in Morocco. Moroccan people are looking at him like uh, a man who betrayed the cause, uh, because his brother, as you said, is a, is a nationalist. And the French people just, they consider, okay, so you're a little bit better than the other Moroccan because you're an officer. But anyway, you're a Moroccan. And, um, I think that, uh, humiliation, uh, shape people. They it, it changes them for forever. When you experience racism, when you experience humiliation because of uh, your color, and also because of the fact that you don't have money and that you can't buy uh, nice clothes for your children, or uh, you can't buy them gift for their birthday, uh, I, I think it completely changes your personality. Um, and um, I, I read a lot Franz Fanon when I was uh, writing this book. And Frantz Fanon, he speaks a lot about shame and about humiliation. How the people who are colonized are, uh, you know, they have this burden on their shoulder, this burden of shame, and it changes them. And very often, the one who is humiliated will want to humiliate himself. And what I wanted to show also is that um, I mean. Um yeah you can I feel a lot of empathy for him because I think that uh, what he had to experience is awful terrible but at the same time um uh, the way he behaves towards Mathilde or his sister is also um something that I that I dislike very much because I think that he he believes that uh, Mathilde or Amin or any woman are the only one he can dominate he is a dominated He is dominated all his, all the time. But when he comes home, he can dominate and he dominates his wife. And that's also really what I wanted to show. And I think that I, uh, that's something I'm working on since uh, Adele how um, the structure of domination are are made, that you are dominated and then you want to dominate. And, you know, it's always like that. Uh, The one who is dominated will want to dominate. And uh, there is like a a, a vicious circle of of humiliation. Once there is an humiliation, you can be sure that um, there will be more. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I, I didn't reflect on this while reading, but you've just made me think that there... Is something also, I think, about the specifically the fact that he um, served in the French army. That sort of when he would have signed up, perhaps it wasn't something he particularly had much choice on or about, or particularly had, uh, you know, any uh, particular desire to do. But at the same time, it would have been considered in certain circles and in, perhaps in that society at the time the kind of the right thing to do, like being on maybe. The right side, right exactly. side of history, and then the world has kind of changed around him. So he comes back to a world where a decision that he thought was good and he thought he was doing the right thing at the time. That you know he hasn't changed and his decision hasn't changed, but the world has changed. And just as you were talking there, it put me in mind of the way that sort of, for example, uh, in France but also in the UK, sort of certain uh, sort of working class communities when uh the the economy collapses or the industry moves away turn to the far right as a kind of response to the humiliation that comes uh that comes out of those situations exactly i mean in a way it's almost like the same underlying mechanics at work in a sense that sort of fuel his sense of humiliation it's that sort of sense of disorientation i suppose
1: Yeah, and um, I think that's why I wanted to write not only one book, but a trilogy. Uh, A lot of people ask me, but why do you want to to write three books? Because of that, because I want to show that the world is changing faster than individuals. And um, the influence that it has, the fact that someone like Amin is going to experience the war and then colonization, independence and then the first year of uh, of independence are going also to change his life and he doesn't understand what is happening and my my daughter now she's wearing mini skirt and she's listening to rock and roll music what happened? I'm the same man than the man who went to France to make the war and who believed that you can't do this kind of things and um, I think that in a country like Morocco it's even uh, harder and even more violent because our society changed between like the 50s and now very 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 fast if you look at the destiny of my grandmother and my destiny it has nothing to, to do I think that my grandmother not the one I'm talking about in the book but the other one the Moroccan one I think that if she if she was to see me today I don't know what she would think of me um she, she wouldn't understand this this society. Um I think that the evolution we experience in Morocco between the fifties and today can be compared to the evolution that Europe experienced between the end of the nineteenth century. And, um, the, the, the end of the 20th century. So what you experience in, is, uh, like 100 years, we experience it in 50 years. And so, of course, this is very different. And of course, the reaction are going to be even more violent be- because people don't understand why you, your traditions are changing. The, the way of life is changing. Everything is changing. And, um, of course, it's going to cause a lot of, uh, of problems and of melancholy uh, in in my different characters. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That puts me in mind very much of. Um, I remember reading a book about the. Uh, it was it sort of the build up. It was called The Rites of Spring, and it was a build up to essentially the First World War in Europe uh, by a Hungarian um, historian called Modris Eckstein. And one thing he talks about at the beginning is how the industrialization of Germany started much later than Britain and France. And therefore happened much quicker because they kind of caught up in sort of 50 years in a way that uh, that Britain and France had taken 100, 150 years to get to that point. And the sort of the fracturing effect that had on society because this progress or this change at least was compressed into such a such a short period
1: oh that's very interesting uh, i have to read oh it's that. a really
0: really fascinating book um just on that subject and i think this will have to be the um the final thing we we talk about because we are we are getting short on time is that sort of that creeping sense of modernity of a new world arriving uh in several different senses at the same time so you mentioned the sort of the miniskirt, and there's a moment with sort of with uh selma so uh uh, Amin's uh younger sister, um who um where it says that uh sort of the boys that she hang out hung out with is all these boys cared about were rock and roll, American films, beautiful cars, and dates with girls who weren't afraid to sneak out at night. Uh, one thing that really struck me about that, being somebody who has never visited Morocco, is how you have this realization of, oh, the 1950s was the 1950s. Everywhere, or not necessarily everywhere, but the, kind of, <laughs> the forces that were shaping American youth and British youth and French youth were also at work in uh, in Morocco. Um, but also, just this sense of um, because of the the colonial situation of Morocco, this sense of modernity and these ideas of of freedom and independence are going to kind of manifest themselves in a significantly different way to how they would in 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 Europe and in the United States where whereas you felt even though I mean maybe in like nineteen sixty eight there was this sense of potential for revolution, in a sense the changes all took place within the kind of the the framework of the state and the society as it existed. In a place like Morocco and I'm sure other colonized countries, those sort of Uh, tendencies towards freedom and to sort of self-determination are going to have to be in overthrowing this kind of external power and sort of getting rid of this kind of colonial oppressive force and therefore in a sense are going to manifest themselves in much more dramatic and much more violent ways.
1: Yeah, but there is a a paradox. For instance, in in Morocco, the the nationalists who are going to fight and for some of them to die for the independence of Morocco, uh, the majority of them are very much influenced by French ideas a lot of them went to France to study. And uh, for many students who went to France uh, from from Morocco, they had um, money from the Nationalist Party. They told them, go there, because you need to learn about them. You need to look at their life because that's by knowing them that we are going to beat them. There was not um, uh, the idea of a war of civilization or the idea that it was an ideology because against the other one. It was just um, to say that we are like you. Stop saying, stop telling us that we are not equal. We understand as well as you the the concept of universality, of freedom, of equality, whatever. And, um, you know, the, the the king of Morocco, the, the, the first king of independence, uh, uh, Hassan II, he was speaking extraordinary French. He would give his press conference in France and always, quote... Uh, Pascal or Buffon or Machiavelli. So it's interesting because it was not a divorce in terms of culture. There there was this idea that yes, we are going to go to France and to study, and uh, we can uh, quote Voltaire and we know all that. But we are independent, and we do it not as your uh, as dominated, but as your brothers or as your cousins. We are the cousins from Morocco and it's very different from uh, Algeria. Algeria had, a, of course, because of the war and because this. Um, terrible and tragic story, they, uh, history. They had a very different relationship with France. But in Morocco, there is this idea that, okay, now it's over. You have to go, but we, we are going to stay friends. We are going to trade together. Uh, so a lot of French stayed after the, 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 the independence. So that's also, and I think it's very interesting, the, the ambiguity of uh, the, the the independence in Morocco. Uh, when the, uh, the, the, the Independence began. You know that a lot of teachers in Morocco were French. We had the, the what we called coopérants um, until the mid 70s so they they there were the, the the main uh teachers and professors in universities in in school, so you can say that the the students that uh, at that time were very much influenced still by the French ideology, but it was not anymore the colonist ideology but um uh, the French language and all that and i'm and i embodies that because I am the the child the child of um uh, two people who experienced that. And I, I write in French, I speak French, and I was very much influenced by France, even uh, if I was living in Morocco. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's also that, that I want to to tell in the, the trilogy. Yeah,
0: and, and, and I'm so excited to know that it will be a trilogy because um, without giving anything away to our listeners where the book ends, we feel this kind of, this wave coming. We feel this kind of, you know, in this, vast landscape we feel the change quite literally we see it on the horizon and knowing that this story is going to uh, be picked up and is going to be developed and we're going to be with you um, for two more books it's very, uh, it's very, very exciting as a reader. <laughs> I know this is a terrible question to ask an author and a terrible one probably to finish on, but do we have any sense of when we might expect the next, uh, yes, oh, good.
1: <laughs> February, February three, <laughs> yeah, February. Uh, beginning of February so I'm very happy I gave my manuscript yesterday so today is a very it's a very good day to ask me the question because (laughs) now I'm very happy to say that it's Swedish. I
0: got lucky then. (laughs) Yeah absolutely. Oh Leila that is all we've got time for. Um, The Country of Others is available uh, obviously from Shakespeare and Company in store we have copies in both English and the Uh, the French original. Uh, You can also buy it from our website or your local uh, independent bookstore, wherever you may be based. Uh, All that remains for me to say is, Leila Slimani, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr. Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Freinan taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.